You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. It's so good to be here with you today. If you're visiting with us, I do that every Sunday. It's like my little way of greeting 1,000 people or so on a Sunday because I'm not going to get to say hi to everybody. So welcome to Kingsway. We're super glad you're here. And if you came on Mother's Day, we're really glad you're here. But we're one of those churches that doesn't preach the calendar. We do Christmas and Easter. Occasionally, a sermon might line up with the calendar. But otherwise, we don't really preach the calendar. So it's not a Mother's Day sermon. So please forgive me if you're visiting and you were caught off guard. But This past weekend, I got to go to Northeast Ohio. I was asked to speak at a men's retreat at the camp I grew up going to. And so I just happened to be up at my parents' house for a couple nights while I was speaking at this retreat. And I got to see my mom and I got to see my 93-year-old grandmother also. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, super cool. I want to say, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. I want to say good morning because my mom and my grandma said they would be watching at the 9 a.m. service. So grandma... It's really good to have you watching with us today. There you go. You've been welcomed to Kingsway. So she's probably just so elated right now. Anyway, it is Mother's Day, and I hope that you remember to do something. If not, this is not your last warning, but you will get one more after this. But the reason we remember things in life is two reasons. Either they happened all the time, and so we remember them. They stick in our head, and they stick in our head in that moment, almost like, do you know on your phones today, like when you take a picture and it's got like live video a second or so before and a second or so after, you know what I'm talking about, and all of a sudden it zooms in and like takes the picture? That's how you will remember things that happen often in your life. You may remember, like I did, when I was a kid, we ate almost every dinner together. There were obviously nights we didn't. There was a sport or maybe dad had a meeting or came home late. But most of the time, this was the case. And so I could see us sitting in the kitchen where we grew up. I could see my dad sitting at the head of the table. I could see where everybody was placed as if I'm outside my body looking at all of us. But the other things you'll remember in life are anything that's attached to a strong emotion. Now, I know for men, they think they only have three emotions, hungry and angry are two of them. And we think these are the only things that we feel, but the reality is there's a massive amount of emotions that we feel in this life. Happy, sad, scared, terrified, angry, whatever it might be. And when it's a really strong emotion, your body releases chemicals that locks that moment into your brain. Now, when it comes to Mother's Day, some of you may be having phenomenal moments and memories that have locked times, situations in your brain as if you can go back and see the video. And in those cases, you pick up certain sights and smells and sounds, you know what I mean? You pick up certain details from the moment and they just stand out to you and they're relevant for a reason. I remember this one time when I was a kid, my sister, I, I, for, I remember the moment she said it the first time, and then it started this repetitive moment, and I think that's why I remember it. I remember after dinner, my dad had something. I don't remember if he went downstairs or he had work to do or went to a meeting. I just remember it was my mom, my sister, and I in our kitchen, and my sister got up from the table, and she said, ugh, she like grabbed her belly, and she laid down on the floor behind my dad's chair on the kitchen floor, and she was holding her belly. She said, you ever notice after you eat a really big meal, it just feels really good to lay on the floor and do nothing? Now, we were kids. I don't remember how old I was. I was maybe eight to 10 years old. But what this began was a tradition in our home. Because I remember sitting there laughing at her like, you're such an idiot. Because that's what every brother thinks of his older sister, right? Like, you're such a dork, right? But then I joined her on the floor. Next thing you know, a tradition began where my sister and I would lay on the floor 
after dinner in the kitchen. And, and I don't know why this started, but it's in my head because it would happen so often that we would do it. And I remember a specific moment because there was a really strong emotion attached to it. It was a moment of joy and laughter and pleasure. And here it is. In that moment, one of these moments, we, somebody had told us that if you freeze grapes, they're really, really good. So we froze some grapes, and then I think we brought them out and found you're going to crack your tooth if you eat them. So we'd let them thaw for a while, and we were laying on the floor, and all of a sudden we got this grandiose idea, what would happen if we threw these grapes up in the air and tried to catch them in our mouth? Oh, this is glorious. I don't know why you're going, oh no, this is amazing. We're throwing them up, we're missing them, they land on the ground. Yeah, this is before everybody cared about germs, you know, whatever. You eat it, ew, I know. And once in a while, a grape would get away from us, and our dog would find them. And I just had so much fun. I remember it as if it were yesterday. That's really important for today's story because when we're told this story, there are certain details in the story that pop out. And you think to yourself, why is that detail in there? This actually happens throughout the gospels. One of the reasons we actually trust the the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels meaning you can overlay them over each other and see where they're telling the same stories. And once in a while, someone will add in a detail that somebody else didn't add. And the reason it's in there is either that person like Matthew was there and saw it and picked up on something, or when maybe like Mark or Luke were interviewing maybe Peter or one of the other apostles, there was a detail that they remembered. It stood out to them for some reason or another. Are you with me? We get to John, and John's kind of like doing his own thing. He really is honestly doing his own thing. And uh, so you can't always line up John with the other three because John is trying to accomplish something totally different. But John tells us a story in John chapter 11 of Lazarus. And the story goes like this. I'm not going to read it all to you, but quickly it goes like this. There's a man named Lazarus. And him and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are very good friends of Jesus. In fact, we're told multiple times, even in John 11, Jesus loved them. And everybody around could see it by the way Jesus acted. So when Jesus is out doing his ministry and he's teaching, and all of a sudden, word comes to Jesus from some friends that Lazarus is sick and about to die. Mary and Martha have sent these messengers, these friends to Jesus, and we need you, come and heal him. And when Jesus gets the message, he keeps teaching and he keeps teaching and he keeps teaching. In fact, he waits two days. Somewhere between these friends' messengers being sent by Mary and Martha to them arriving and Jesus waiting, somewhere in there, Lazarus dies. Jesus gathers the disciples together who are with him and says, we need to go to Lazarus. He's fallen asleep. The disciples go, well, if he's sick, let him sleep. And Jesus says, no, 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 he's dead, he's dead. We talked about this the first week. If you want to know more about that, go listen to it. But then what happens is Jesus says, it's time for us to go. So Jesus goes with the disciples. They show up. First conversation he has is with Martha. And Martha is just distraught beside herself. Oh, if only you've been here, Jesus. And Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody who believes in me will live even though he dies. Then Martha goes and gets Mary. And Mary comes out and says, oh, Jesus, if you'd been here. And you hear this anguish in them. If only, if only. And Jesus is trying to turn their with only into a but still. And then finally, Jesus says, let's go over to see where they buried Lazarus. And they buried him in some sort of cave-like situation. I was in Israel a couple months ago and I got to see some old caves 
that they would use for burial grounds. In fact, one moment we're driving through kind of a woody area. A lot of the area is not woody, but this area was woody. And all of a sudden the bus driver slows down and, and says, if you look off to your left, you'll notice that there is a, somebody's ancient tomb there. And it literally was just a cave with a big stone that was rolled next to it. And so you could kind of get in your mind what it could have looked like, even though that wouldn't have been Lazarus's tomb. And so he says, roll this stone away. And this is where we're to pick up our story. And I'll just read a couple passages. John eleven thirty nine. 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there was a bad odor for he has been there four days. Now, I did a little research that I decided not to share with you. Um, but if you are curious, Google later what happens when you die. Don't do it. It's really, it's just not information you want. It's not, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a doctor. Maybe you are. You already knew that information. It's not information I wanted to have. But let's just say it's not pretty. And by four days, there would have been enough back, uh, decomposition from the bacterias. Yeah, smell would have been profound. There's a reason why they were locking him up in a cave. And even though in ancient Israel, they did have uh, some preservation methods, it isn't the embalming methods that say we use today. So he would have been wrapped in cloth. He would have perhaps had spices wrapped around him to help preserve the body and even hide the smell a little bit. But after four days, things that would have been broken down enough that it would have been pretty stanky inside there. Now we get to the next verse. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out and his hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Question. The book we're going through, The Lazarus Life, if you picked it up and read it, it's, it's helping us think through these things. But question. Obviously, whatever decomposition was occurring in Lazarus was completely undone and remade in a moment. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, in a loud voice, obviously his body was completely put back together. Side note, this isn't a sermon on heaven and hell and the resurrection and resurrection bodies, but Paul does tell us that in the twinkling of an eye, we're gonna receive a new body. In a moment, everything is gonna be changed. What is uh, passing away, this body, this life, what is dying and decaying, this body, this life, have you noticed that the older you get, the less strong you get? The less wise you get, the more you forget things. Your eyes stop working as good. This is the process of sin on our life. And Jesus came to undo the effects of sin. And the first part of that undoing is in our spirit. It's within us. It's this transformation from death to life. That we are supposed to be becoming more patient, more gracious, more merciful, more kind, more generous, more loving the longer we spend with Jesus. But on the other end of this life, death is still going to get us, but death will not have the last word. And what Jesus is showing to us in Lazarus is two things. Number one, death did not have the last word. For people who were struggling, which was a huge amount of people in Jesus' day, will there be a literal resurrection? Jesus is showing them, yes, there is a literal resurrection. This man, who again, the King James says, would stinketh, he now is complete and whole. His actual physical body. 
I do believe that whenever Jesus returns and the dead in Christ are raised, we will get new bodies. They won't look exactly like this, but they'll look something like this. We can actually study the gospels and look at Jesus' body and learn something about what our body might look like. Man, I did this in a previous sermon. I wish I had more time. I dig into that. You may be fascinated now. You can find that on our website. Go to our media page. Go to the sermons and just look up dead bodies. No, that probably isn't how you're going to find it. Look up uh, heaven and hell. I believe it was in our, the end of our Revelation series. We actually talked about heaven and hell, and we joked about zombies. You look it up. You can listen to it. I talked and theorized and had a great time with that message. It went deeper into that. But this is important because that's what happened in a moment physically, but there's something else that's happening. This is where Lazarus becomes for us kind of an allegory. It's a story, a picture that we can look at and study and understand better our own life. Because while he came out of the tomb and his body was now whole, he was now redeemed, so to speak. Nevertheless, he's still wearing the grave clothes. We have no reason to believe the grave clothes were transformed as well. Right? Remember when you were watching, maybe you weren't like me, but remember when you were watching like the old Hulk cartoons when you were a kid and Hulk would transform and much of his clothes would rip off, but obviously to be appropriate, he'd still have pants on. And somehow the pants, only the part from here to here magically expanded with the Hulk. Some of you are like, I've never thought of that before. I just messed up your childhood, right? This is important because when Lazarus came out, while Lazarus had a brand new body, or at least had a renewed body, he, did, he wasn't given his heavenly body. We have no reason to believe that. He was clearly restored in his body. However, he's still wearing the grave clothes that picked up the foul stench. And everybody say it with me, ew. And it's a great picture for us. Sometimes transformation stinks. It does. Even though we're supposed to become more gracious, more patient, more merciful, more loving, more kind, more faithful as time passes, have you ever noticed that there's still parts of you that stinketh? If I'm remembering correctly, and I'm getting older, so I may not be, after our grape moment on the floor, I had this uh, thing I would do when I was a kid. Maybe your kids do the same thing. I would usually run in the house from getting home from somewhere. And I remember running in the house and apparently grapes and dogs do not get along. Maybe you don't know this. But it was later in the evening and the lights were off and there was no light in the room. And I found what happened next because with my bare feet, some of you know exactly where this is going. I ran in the room to the TV so I could be there first, so I could play Super Mario Brothers. Thank you, two of you. And I stepped in something that squished between my toes and then slid and then fell. And it took me a moment to figure out what could have been on the floor. And as soon as my brain caught up to my body, I went, oh. And I tried to make my way to the light without spreading the problem around the room, only to realize that was a few piles of grape mess on the floor was now significantly bigger and messier, and I didn't know what to do. And it dawned on me, there is going to be a process, a multi-step process to cleaning off my foot, changing my clothes, 
doing the laundry, cleaning the floor, and trying not to be completely bitter at my dog, who was only eating the grapes that my sister couldn't catch, it was clearly all her fault, in her mouth. Now, I remember this so profoundly because I can remember the sights and the smells and the sounds and the anger and the rage and the emotion that was all wrapped up in me. And this is the point, though a gross story. Stephen Smith told a great story. I wanted my own story. Transformation takes time. It took time to clean up the mess. Are you with me? But here's what I know. A lot of times we become believers, we raise our hands, we unite with Christ, we pray a prayer, we go into the waters of baptism, we come up, we come alive, and we think, yes, I'm good to go. And we don't partner with God in doing the hard work needed to transform our heart, soul, mind, and strength to his glory. But I know this, I know this. Having been in a men's retreat, having challenged the men to get vulnerable and transparent with each other, and then hearing stories of hard conversations men are having with each other, I know this, if you ignore the stench, it will get you. In fact, Stephen Smith says, ignoring the stench of what has gone foul in our lives will not alleviate the odor, it will make us sick. And so what is going on in your life that you're ignoring, you're trying not to deal with, you're trying not to confront, you're hoping nobody else notices it, and you're thinking, I wonder if I got away with that one, and how do you confront it? How can you actually deal with it. I mean, you're alive in your spirit by Jesus Christ, but he wants to do more than just take you from death to life spiritually. He wants to transform you in this life. He wants to bring about what what Paul calls the, the fruits of the spirit to make you joyful, patient, and kind, and loving, and faithful, and self controlled. I mean, think about these are the things that God is growing us in. I'll show it to you in scripture, in case you're not sure, right? This comes from what we call the Great Commission. So right after Jesus raises from the dead, he's now standing with his disciples. They don't really know what's going on. This is his last marching orders. He's gonna go up into heaven. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he says this. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is supposed to be this unity process. It's almost like a wedding day. It's supposed to be a, I'm convinced, it is a mark in the ground moment. It's like, okay, I'm receiving Jesus by faith and now I'm marking my faith with a decision. So I'm becoming one with him. I'm being united with him in this ceremony of like a wedding, so to speak. And in this moment, I'm surrendering to him. But what's happening spiritually in this moment is he's giving me a moment to wash away my sin, past, present, and future. And the reason that's a powerful, this is, I think, what Peter is getting to. I think it's the first Peter chapter three, where he says, um, we are baptized for the cleansing of our minds. The whole idea is, even though there may be things in my past and habits that I've formed and things that I've done that I'm embarrassed and ashamed about, I always know that when God looks at me, he doesn't see the me that's been, he sees Jesus himself when he looks at me. Because I can know now, I can look at that moment. I I don't have to wonder, did I pray the right prayer? Well, I sinned after I said it, after I went forward. Did I mean it? I have a moment in time that I am marked not by my perfection, I'm marked by him. But now something more powerful is happening because now I'm in Jesus Christ and I'm growing in him. That's why the very next verse says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So while I come to Jesus 
and I give my life to Jesus and I'm united with Jesus in baptism, that is not the end of my story. I need more teaching. Matt Nickerson, hi, that's me, in case you didn't know that. Matt Nickerson doesn't know everything there is to know. Matt Nickerson has some stinky habits that still creep up on him when he's not ready. I wish that weren't true, but I can say at 45, I look more like Jesus than I did at 15, but I can also say there's a process that I am under that God is continuing to grow me. Theologically, we call this sanctification. There's a big word. You look that one up later too, if you want. Right after what grapes do to dogs, like the two go hand in hand, right? Sanctification, you may have been to a church, right? The pastor say, sanctify. Sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit bringing about holiness in me, the transformation of my life. And Jesus says, teach him to obey everything I've commanded you. And oh, by the way, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Your confidence is in that. I am with you. This process is mine to bring about in you. So partner with me, be patient with me because I am being that with you. I love the way Stephen Smith says in the book, Lazarus Life, he says, lust does not die in the waters of baptism. Envy does not expire when we accept Jesus as our savior. Long suppressed anger does not disappear when we meet Jesus at the front of the church, nor does greed, overeating, undereating, laziness, or any other stinking reality of earthly life. Let's admit it. You and I still need the ongoing work of Jesus transforming power. And everybody, yeah, let's just give God the glory because amen. Now, I want to show this to you. The guy who wrote the book of John, he is the apostle John. He refers to himself in the gospel John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is not a statement of arrogance. That is not John's way of saying, well, (laughs) I was the special apostle. That is his way of not actually being arrogant. Because if I say, I, John, am amazing and I did all these things and I saw these things, then you'll think I'm special. My identity is not in anything that I've done. My identity is that I am loved by Jesus himself. And he wrote a series of letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we named things so that you can find what you're looking for, right? 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in the first of those letters, 1st John, he makes this powerful analogy He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I used to teach this passage wrongly. And so I wanna repent. If you've ever heard me teach it wrongly, let me correct it now. My name isn't Jesus and I don't walk on water. I used to teach that because God is light and in him there's no darkness at all, God can't be near you when you sin. That's not at all what the scriptures show us. The scriptures show that God is everywhere all the time. He can't not be anywhere. If God ceased to be anywhere, he wouldn't be God. So your sin doesn't prevent God's presence. But the analogy he's picturing, I like to picture a big dark stage. Imagine we turned off all the light, all light. It was completely black in here. And suddenly there's a chair in the middle of the stage. And there's a spotlight on that one chair. And that light is driving out the darkness in the room. But the further you get away from the chair, the darker it gets. And so when I read John 1 now, I picture... This idea that when we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with God and therefore we have fellowship with everybody else who's standing around the chair. But the further we get into the darkness, the further we get away from the light. 
In fact, here's some of John's words. First John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And this creates a conundrum, a problem. God wants a relationship with us. God wants us to have a relationship with others. But if we're hiding and walking in darkness, it's not gonna go good for any of us. We find ourselves outside of God's provision and care and the things he wants to do to change us and bring about the best for us. He goes on in verse seven, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now let that sink in for a minute. Because when I used to read this passage and hear this analogy, what I would feel was immediate guilt and shame for any time that I sinned. And I would feel immediate condemnation. And I would feel like if I sinned, if I messed up, if I did something I wasn't supposed to do, I'm walking in the darkness, I don't have fellowship with God or others. And what, what I think John is trying to tell us is when we walk in the light, it doesn't mean that we don't ever stumble. It doesn't mean we don't ever fall. What it means is we're still dealing inside the light with other believers inside the light. And Jesus purifies us from all sin. The church is supposed to be the one place where it's okay to not be okay as long as we don't plan to stay that way. Now that'll preach, right? What we are trying to create at Kingsway is a safe place for sinners to find grace and to walk out of their grave clothes together. And that's hard. It takes time and patience. It takes trusting others with your story and inviting other people into your story and, and hoping to God that they handle it well. It's scary. In fact, the reason most of us dabble in darkness instead of walking in the light, it's not that we don't trust God to handle our sin, it's that we don't trust other Christians. And I can't say that I fully blame you because I've heard plenty of horror stories, but I promise you for every horror story I've heard about a church who didn't handle it well, in this church, I've heard 10 or 20 more for each one of a way that a life group or a friend or a mentor or somebody came alongside somebody who was dabbling in darkness and were loved and accepted and not condemned or judged or put aside. I cannot promise you that Kingsway will always get it right, but I can promise you we will try. We will try because our confidence is not in our performance. Our confidence of walking in the light has to do with Jesus, God's son, purifying us. He goes on in verse eight, he says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Now, let me unpack this. I, I've wrestled with this for years, years. I've read more commentaries than I could count. What is John saying? And what I could say is, I'm wrestling with this at 45 years old. What is John saying? Here's where I am today. I reserve the right to change my mind. You're allowed to disagree with me. I mean, if you want to be wrong, you can do that. But thank you for the 20 of you who think that's funny. The rest of you, I promise, I really am joking, all right? If we claim we have no sin, I believe what John is saying is that if we know we have sin, but we claim we have no sin, then we're really only fooling ourselves, right? I mean, if you aren't currently sinning, you aren't currently walking and dabbling in darkness, you don't need to act like you are dabbling in darkness. That would also be called hypocrisy. So what John is talking about is if I'm actually not where I need to be, I actually still got grave clothes on and I stinketh a bit, right? If that's what's happening in my life, but I act like that's not what's happening in my life, 
then before I can fool anybody else, before I can deceive anybody else, you know who I have to fool? Me. I've got to lie to myself before I can lie to anybody else. And he says, if we do that, we're not living in the truth. As believers, remember, Jesus is talking to a woman who is deep in sin. It's at a well, and she's a Samaritan. Jews hate Samaritans. It is the ultimate racism between these two groups. But Jesus goes right to her and loves her. The problem is she's at the well because she has an immoral past. In her story, maybe different than your story, she's been divorced multiple times. And the man she's with right now is not her husband. So even though she's been divorced multiple times, like five different times, she's currently living in an adulterous relationship as well. And Jesus isn't judging her. He's not condemning her. He's standing there at the well where nobody else will talk to her in the heat of the day. And he's loving her. But he says to her, because she wants to put Jesus off. She doesn't want to confront the dark parts of her life. She wants to keep Jesus at bay and say, sure, I want to the Messiah as long as he doesn't get too close. And she says, well, I know you Jews believe that we worship God over there. And we Samaritans believe we worship God here. And Jesus says, there's coming a day, ma'am, where it won't matter where you worship. What will matter is that you worship him in spirit and in truth. Where you're located, pick your building. I don't care, your family room, backyard, it won't matter. What will matter is that you are walking in the truth because you'll believe that in the truth is the light and in the light is life. And in the life, you'll find other people in community walking in that same grace, in that same light, in the same truth of who God is. And he goes on, he says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And this is beautiful. John is not writing this about a, about a salvation moment, though it's true. He's writing to a group of Christians. And he's saying, if you still have darkness, don't stay in darkness, come into the spotlight. And don't be worried about whether the spotlight's gonna expose you. The purpose of the light is to transform you, is to give fellowship to those of you who accept the fact that I'm not perfect and I got some grave clothes I gotta figure out how to take off because they still stink. In fact, in the Lazarus life, Stephen Smith says it this way. To be a Christian means to be continually involved in the transformation process. We never get to quit changing. If we quit changing, we're spiritually dead. If we quit changing, we're finished. We're done. We never stop transforming in the spiritual life. The cleaning takes a lifetime. The most important thing is to be moving toward Jesus. That's a good word right there. That's why our mission as a church, there's a lot of great missions and words and phrases you could put together. We've debated all of them. But we wanna become more like Jesus. At the end of the day, that's our goal. And it's really hard to measure that. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Well, it's something we all have to self-evaluate. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Do I look more like him today than I did last week or last year? And if I don't, what step could I take today to look more like Jesus? And I need to accept up front the grace of that. The grace is it. It's gonna be him doing it in me. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. One of my mentors years ago was a man who had been a Christian. He was in the church, but he had a private addiction um, to pornography. And that eventually led him to uh, cheat on his wife. And she chose, instead of leaving him, to work through it with him and be healed and reconciled to him. And that took a lot of years. And he ended up in something called SA. Some people call it SAA. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous, but you could figure it out. And he told me once, he said, Matt, 
I've never experienced church like I experienced it in SA. And I said, why? He said, because we had a group of people who were all broken. We all knew we were broken. Our sins were exposed. And as soon as we quit hiding from each other, we finally found the love, the acceptance, the community to accept the fact that we are weak and imperfect and in need of grace. He had been decades sober from his struggle, decades of walking out of the grave clothes when one day a profound temptation came over him and he started fasting and he fasted for a week and he didn't sin. And I say that because here he is, an older gentleman in his 60s, having walking and restoration. You think, well, that's in his past. That's a young man's struggle. It's all behind him now. And he's still finding the temptations of the flesh hitting him, but he didn't give in because he's walking in the light. He didn't have to run into darkness and hide and deal with it on his own. John goes on in verse eight and he says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is one of those like, serious moments. So I get nobody's like, yeah, but that should be one of those moments where we're all like, yeah, because this means that wherever we are today, whatever's happened, whatever we've done, Jesus can still purify us. We need only to confess our sins and he is faithful. I love that he puts just in there because when we think of justice, we think of God punishing people for what they've done. And John says, oh, he's punishing all right. He's punishing Jesus. When you look at the cross, you see the justice of God poured out on him. He is fully just and he'll forgive you. And you're like, oh, that stirs my heart. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. I don't have this on the screen. I'm gonna have to ask for your grace. But C.S. Lewis in the book, Mere Christianity, it's a little bit of a difficult, but a super good read if you've never done it. He says this, when a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, at least in the sense that some of the bad habits are corrected, he often feels that it would be, now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illness, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his old days, but why now? The answer, because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Doesn't that excite you a little bit, just a little bit? Then he goes on. He says, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised at all. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And then he says, if we let him, 
For we can prevent him if we choose. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Yeah, for that, let's just give God the glory, amen. So what prevents us from coming to God and finding this transformation? I am convinced the answer is fear. And if I had another hour, I'd dig in deeper. But since I don't, I'll just read one passage to you. First John 4, 17 says, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, more perfect. It gets perfected over time, do you see it? So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. And we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his love. Oh, I quote this one to you all the time. You've been here for any length of time. I love this passage. If we are afraid of God, it means that we have not really experienced his love. We do not understand this transforming process is not intended to hurt us or crush us or embarrass us or shame us or destroy us in any way, shape, or form. It is intended to perfect us in his love, to make us more perfect in our trust and obedience and faithfulness and knowledge of him. As John Newton says so well, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be, but by the grace of God, I am not what I was. And all God's people can say to that, amen. All right, here's what I wanna do. I wanna invite you into the story. So I don't know where you are in your walk with God right now, but um, I don't want you to leave. I know it's Mother's Day and you've got a million other plans and things on your mind, but I don't want you to leave without receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior if you've never done that. If you've got some things in your past, God is speaking to you while I'm doing this message and you're like, he's talking to me. How does he know he's talking to me? And we wanna walk you through that. Salvation happens in a moment with a decision. A moment where we say, God, I'm all in. I receive Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. My Savior means he's the only one who can save me from my sins. My Lord means he wants to lead me. He wants to change me. He wants to transform me. And it comes with a first decision. If that's you, I just want to encourage you right now to raise your hand. Say, I'm ready to receive Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. What's going to happen is we got a team of people that just got up, moved to different parts of the room, and they're looking for hands going up. And they're going to come to you, and they're just going to bring you a card. They're going to get your information and follow up with you. You don't have to know everything that you need to know next. You just need to take the first step and say, here I am, Lord, save me. You could do that at any moment between now and the end of the service. They're going to keep watching. To say, all right, I did it. He got me. I remember one moment God was calling me and he kept calling throughout the service, kept calling throughout the worship, kept calling throughout the sermon. He called in the worship after the sermon and my feet were solidly concrete. I was not gonna move. And finally, at the end of it, God said, would you stop it? And he took away this spiritual pickaxe and he broke away this concrete holding me back in fear and I went forward. And if I hadn't gone forward that day, I wouldn't be standing here today because it was that moment when my youth minister looked at me and said, Matt, I think God's calling you into ministry. And I went, no way. But it was me finally letting go and moving forward that brought me to this place. 
Maybe that's you. You're holding on. For the rest of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, maybe something in this is convicting you. Would you make a decision right now to reach out to a spiritual friend? It has to be a Christian who is at least as mature or more mature than you. Somebody you can go to and say, I need to walk in the light as he is in the light so I can have fellowship with you and God and others. I need to talk about some things, some things I'm struggling with, some things I'm facing that I don't want to talk about, I don't want to deal with. I got some grave clothes, I stinketh, and I need your help. Just take that bold step, and if you don't have a friend, if you don't have a group, if you don't have a place, go to our Connect Hub when you're out the door and say, hey, I want to, I want to sign up for a group. We won't assume anything, but we will work with you to help you. Let me pray over us. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ, who is so good and faithful. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God, that no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, there is hope, there is life, there is grace, there is mercy in the name of Jesus. And it's still true for us right here, right now, today. Thank you, God. May we walk in the light as you are in the light. May we be a church who is transformed by your love and allowing that love to transform others. Oh God, we love you. I know it's messy and it's smelly and it's stinky and it's a process and it takes a long time to clean it all up and whatever. But God, thank you for your faithful work continuing to do that in us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.